Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back on an off week with a special episode about how we read Gene Wolfe, how other people read Gene Wolfe, and how we do the show. We're doing this because a very generous supporter commissioned us to. They asked us these questions, and so we're answering them. I just want to say thanks to our supporters and our Patreon supporters, and I hope you all enjoy this episode, this special episode of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Yeah, as we always say, every time we get to do one of these special commissioned episodes, we just love doing these. We love stepping outside of what we normally do, and, and this one in particular is going to be a lot of fun. It's a sort of a, a meta episode getting us to reflect on how we do what we do, and and if there's any real uh, method to any of our madness at all. And I don't know, we might uh, we might find this sort of cathartic. This conversation might be a little cathartic for us. So I will echo your thanks as well, Brandon. And we're going to start this conversation just by talking about our process and not any of the, the technical stuff. That would be extremely boring. But we're going to talk about how we prepare for an episode and what it is that we're trying even to accomplish in our conversations. And Brandon, I'm going to kick this one to you first. So just walk us through how how you prepare for a, an episode. I don't know if there's a lot of like meditation, a lot of kind of wax on, wax off, but I'm eager to find out. Well, I use a trick that I learned in college when I had to write a paper that I knew uh, was due from the syllabus at the beginning of the semester, which was usually just to read a lot of the information and then leave it alone for a little while until things begin to boil, as as I say. I kind of put it on the back burner a little bit. Uh, with this, we do a show every week. You and I record every week. And so that gives me two or three days from when I read a story to when I have to start really thinking about it. So I usually read the story just without any preconceived notions, just as an act of pleasurable reading. And more often than not, it is it is an act of pleasure, though sometimes it is a little more difficult to get through some of these uh, stories, not the Gene Wolfe stories, typically. I usually read it on the train on my way to work on Monday or finish it when I get home, then try to forget it for a couple days until I have to go back and either do uh, the recap, which requires a, a kind of close reading and understanding of the goals of the story, what I should try to highlight in the story based on what I think is important about that particular story, or for the discussion to read it very closely and kind of interrogate the text, ask myself what is important, what jumped out to me as a reader, why did it jump out to me? And then I write it all down and we talk about it. So that that's pretty much my process. Glenn, what, what do you do to prepare for the podcast? Well, it's not really all that different. I mean, I think this idea, of course, obviously we have to read the stories multiple times. There might be bibliographic podcasts out there where people don't, but I, I can't envision what that would actually be like, what that process would be like. And I think the time in between is super important. So as you say, we record every week for the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast and Elder Sign and Patreon episodes. And I get started on the next story just really as soon as we're done recording an episode. Uh, I tend to go read, especially if it's a short story, 10 pages or less, I will read as, as soon as uh, I close the door behind you on your way out of the, the studio. And that time in between the, the first and the second reading that you talked about is a, a, a real big part of the process of just letting it sink in. Uh, so that you're not in a rush the second time you're reading it, where you're like, I already already read this story, I already did this, but that you've read it once before so that now you can focus on some of the, the, the details. Why this word? Uh, why so much space given to this? And, and so on. And I think that's super helpful. And as listeners know, you and I, we 
rotate who does the recap versus who does the commentary and prepares the discussion questions as well. And the process for doing the commentary and discussion is a, a little bit different than just doing the, the recap. I love doing the recap because, you know, you really just kind of are outlining the story. And, and that's something that for me is just super helpful for seeing how Wolf and, and then also the other writers we do on Elder Sign how they work, how they construct their stories. That's a real helpful thing for us as writers to to do. And it's something that I would recommend anyone who wants to be a writer do with their favorite stories. Also, it's what Gene Wolfe recommends writers do uh, if they want to, or people do if they want to become writers. So uh, I'm really just stealing his advice there. But when I'm doing the, the commentary and the discussion, a big part of my preparation, a big part of my process is finding the literary illusions and then reading those books again, maybe not you know the entirety of the Aeneid, but reading that passage again, reading that section again. If there's scripture that, that shows up, I want to go check out that passage. I will usually end up reading the, the whole book and asking, you know, why has Wolf taken this line? Uh, why is he taking it out of context? Or is he wanting us to think about the context and, and that sort of thing? And then, of course, after I've come up with some questions that I have, and usually it's a pretty big list of questions that we have about every story. We don't get to everything that we'd like to talk about in an episode. Usually after that, then we have to go to see what other scholars have had to say. And and uh, some of the stories we cover on Elder Sign, no, no one has really said anything about them. There's not a whole lot of uh, critical literature about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's story, The Beast, that he wrote when he was 15, for example. But when we're doing Gene Wolfe, Mark Aramini has written about every single story and novel that Gene Wolfe has written. So we always have to go read that. And I also think that we, we, we both like to see what Wolfe himself has to say about the story in his introduction. It's a great way to, to shape a conversation. And we all know that Wolfe himself is something of a trickster when he is telling people what his stories are about, or the context in which he wrote them, and so on. And, and that can provide a lot of, of fodder for what we do. So there's a lot of outside reading in addition to just reading the story. Right. And you and I also both have training in analysis. I mean, we both had uh, similar jobs in the Army, which was analysis of information. And uh, we've both been trained at school to do analysis on texts, what different texts are, why they're written the way they're written. And so, yeah, a big part of it is sort of uh, bringing that experience to bear on knowing what sort of questions to ask of the text, what illusions are meaningful. Almost every illusion is meaningful in some way, unless you have a really terrible writer on your hands. (laughs) And rereading some of that stuff, thinking about the context it was written in. One thing I think you and I both tend to not do is think about what is happening in the writer's life that led to this story. We treat the text as just a, a pure text. A lot of times, especially in reading Gene Wolfe, I am I am left with questions after the first reading, sometimes after the second reading, that I just have to reread the story and think about and read other thinkers until I have some sort of idea or a way to answer the question and support that answer textually. So that's another big part of the the process, especially in doing the commentary and framing the discussion. It's hard to have a discussion if you're asking a question of the, of you know, if I'm asking you a, cl- a question, Glenn, and you've really focused on the recap and the structure of the story, and I don't have a way to open it up and my own reading first. So that's another big part of it for me as well. Yeah, I guess something that we should we should say that we haven't mentioned so far is that we don't share our notes with each other. And, and we sometimes see each other during the week and we'll say a few things about how we're liking the story that we're prepping for. But for the most part, we're coming into these conversations 
cold. And every once in a while, of course, that does mean that one of us feels a little ambushed by a question that just, we just hadn't thought about that aspect of the story. But that's the miracle of editing there. We get to, to edit out the three minute um uh, as we, uh, we try to figure <laughs> right, out what right. we want to say in answer to that question. We should talk a little bit about what we do when we're actually recording these episodes, what we're what kind of conversations we're really trying to create here. And there really are two things that we're, we're trying to do when we get into the recording studio. And, and, and that's to, to do something that is akin to both a, a grad seminar and a, a book club. Humanities grad seminars are all about just reading the hell out of a text, a single text, and asking every single question that you, you can. And from real basic questions to more advanced questions as well. And it, it's not about trying to establish any particular reading of a text or even about trying to satisfactorily answer all of the questions that you're raising. It really is just about asking questions and then talking over the different possibilities with other people who have also only just read this text for the first time. Now, typically, of course, in an actual grad seminar, there is a a professional scholar, an already trained and certified scholar who is conducting the class, who perhaps is already an expert on the things that you, the students, are looking at. Uh, we don't have that in our simulation of this. This is really a grad seminar without the professor, where it's just two students reading a text for the first time and then asking each other questions about it and, and seeing what comes of it. Even if it's not the first time we've read it, I find especially with Gene Wolfe, um, that reading it as if it's the first time you've read it can yield extraordinarily fruitful results. And that that's kind of the tack I take, I think, more often than not for the podcast is to look at the text as if it's my first time through it and ask the questions a first-time reader might ask about the text. Where is it going? Especially with novellas or novels, uh, doing them in chunks, it's, it's sort of a, a training ground to look at what is the author doing to get me to imagine what is going to continue to happen in this novel? I found that as uh, an aspiring writer, an amateur writer, that approaching the text that way and framing it out either through the outline of the recap or really asking those questions of where is the author going? Why is he going there? What hints is he dropping? Why is he making these illusions? Helps me to understand the structure of writing itself, what I want to do with my own stories. And I'm more probably of a discovery writer than a heavy outliner, but this all works kind of on the back burner when I sit down to try to write something new. All of this just becomes ingrained in my own writing process. And I'm hugely grateful to the way we approach our discussions for that. Uh, I think i wouldn't have ever developed as a writer at all uh, had it not been for us doing this podcast. Yeah, I think we've both become way better writers because of doing this podcast, though we've also given up a huge chunk of our time to actually write said stories and uh, send them out to magazines and so on. But, uh, you know, everything comes at a cost. Another reason why I really like our approach, especially to the sort of grad seminar aspect of our podcast, is that it really opens up discourse. We're not really trying to be right or wrong. We're really trying to defend readings and have a civil conversation uh, and really model conversations around disagreement if we happen to disagree on a text. And that is something I really love doing as well, is just opening up that discourse to all people who want to come and talk to us on the forum, suggest a different reading, why they read that way, and just engage in that level of critical thinking and critical analysis 
that allows for real disagreement without uh, discord. And that's something that I, I find to be a really valuable sort of side effect of the podcast as well. And that's something I really enjoy about academia in general is that the job is inherently, the job of being a scholar is inherently to disagree with people and get in arguments with them. But these are also the people who share your common interests. And so these are also the people who then are going to be your friends as well as professional colleagues. And so you can go to an academic conference and, and find several people arguing very loudly, very forcefully about different interpretations of a text or different answers to a pertinent question. And it can seem very heated. And in fact, it is very heated. And then an hour later, you'll see them all drinking a beer together at the bar, laughing and, and joking. And I guess that's something that we try to, to bring to the podcast as well, is to model how to have a serious argument, a serious disagreement about something that matters to you, but to not make that personal, but to actually make that part of the, the fun of it. Yeah, it's recognizing that you're, that the people you're in conversation with all share the same sorts of loves that you share and uh, same interests, as you said, Glenn. And that what we have in common is, f and the reason why we're doing this is much more than the sorts of things that we disagree on. And that's been a really great part of my life for these past two years is just having these sorts of uh, disagreements and conversations about something that uh, you and I have in common and that we both love and inviting other people into that. And I think uh, you and I are both sort of kind of natural community builders around what we love. And this has been a great outlet for that for me that I haven't really had uh, that I hadn't really had before we started this podcast. Right. I guess we should say that another thing that we're trying to simulate here is what life was like for us when we were friends in the military together. And we weren't doing this so much with books uh, back then, but we were doing this a lot with TV and, and movies. Everyone would be watching the same things on their days off. We'd all get back into work and do this kind of thing. And so we're trying to bring all of that here to internet radio. And we do try to complement each other by bringing different assumptive approaches to what we're doing with speculative fiction. So, you know, for me in particular, I think I tend to approach a work of speculative fiction as if it's real, as if it's a historical document from a real society, as, as if it's an artifact of the speculative world that we can try to use in order to understand something or maybe many somethings about this imaginary world that, that some actual real person in the real world has created, right? I guess really what I'm trying to say is that I like to do the things I do for my day job of reading late antique sermons and poems and letters to try to understand what the 5th and 6th century was like in France and Italy and North Africa, and to try to do exactly that with speculative fiction stories as well, whether they're, they're science fiction or, or fantasy, whether they're taking place in a uh, an in imaginary world that is entirely a secondary self-contained creation, or if it's uh, just our world that's a little bit different, I like to approach the text as if it is a real document that doesn't have an author here in the real world. I like to, to get into the, I buy into the concept of the death of the author, at least for one level of reading. Yeah, and my approach is uh, a little bit different. I, I look at these texts wholeheartedly as artifacts of our world, especially uh, when the author invites comparison to our world in some way, which Gene Wolfe often does with literary illusions. And I mean, in Fifth Set of Cerberus, and I think with any sort of space opera or sp space opera adjacent sort of story, um, the author is imagining a sort of history of humanity. So your approach comes in as hugely helpful because they're looking at a sort of future history and what 
remains intact and what doesn't. It's like, you know, Picard reading Shakespeare on the Enterprise, <laughs> which he always seems to be doing. Um, but my approach is a little bit different. I, I think, uh, you know, I have a double major in English and philosophy. And I found uh, when learning about critical theory that a lot of critical theory was like badly applied philosophy to texts. And I found that the genre I really like and I find the most useful in sort of critique and review is in critique of literature is really critical reviewing, which allows the the reviewer's own reflections and connections to sort of and connections uh, that they recognize in the text to the broader world or broader things they've read to sort of come to the surface. And if you stop there, then I think you've written a pretty boring review. But asking yourself why these things came up while you're reading the text can help you understand both what's going on in the text and also um, maybe help you realize things you didn't see in other stories. And two things I read in college really sort of helped shift my approach to writing about reading. And those were Philosophical Hermeneutics by Gadamer, which I think is impossible to to quote here on the podcast. And the other one is uh, these two short essays by W.H. Auden in the beginning of The Dyer's Hand uh, called Reading and Writing. And I just, I want to read just a little bit from the reading essay, um, because I think it really helps, especially with reading Gene Wolfe. Auden writes this, to read is to translate. For no two persons' experiences are the same. A bad reader is like a bad translator. He interprets literally when he ought to paraphrase, and paraphrases when he ought to interpret literally. In learning to read well, scholarship, valuable as it is, is less important than instinct. Some great scholars have been poor translators. Uh, He also writes this, We often derive much profit from reading a book in a different way from that which the author intended, but only once childhood is over, if we know that we are doing so. And other things he talks about in this essay are being able to differentiate between the different sorts of pleasure that we can find in a work of art, in hierarchies of meaning that we can apply to reading, that some interpretations, some interpretations of a text and good texts often have multiple interpretations are more true than others. And that is absolutely the case. You have to have some defense for what you're saying. In reading genre fiction, I am really looking at what type of tropes are being played with. I'm looking for cliches. I have a great love of cliches used well. I'm looking for how cliches get invented. And I'm looking for how authors are taking ideas and iterating on them, on making them new for themselves in their own text. And so it's it's a much more sort of critical reviewing mindset that I bring to reading Wolf in particular, um, though he often requires a lot more research. He's a very sort of, he's a writer that invites a lot of scholarship. Um, but in reading some of the weird fiction, uh, I'm doing more of a sort of hermeneutical reflection. I'm saying, what is this bringing up in me? What is this reminding me of? And how can I make these connections that support uh, reading of the text? And um, I'm trying to be a good critic as well, to invite other people to love what I love or point out reasons why uh, things fell short for me that I'm more than happy to be corrected on. Right, really doubling down on the death of the author, like I like to do, is uh, you know a real conceit. Of course, the author, of course, these stories have been written by an actual person 
in our world. But I think it's really great the way that we we try to play off each other with these different modes of reading. And of course, there are a lot of different ways that one can approach a, a story. Uh, you know, I tend to take this more materialist approach to, to, to treating the speculative world as if it's real. I, I think I might describe what you do as being a little more thematic, that you're interested in in the ideas that the, the author, the themes that the author is is playing with uh, in the, the story and, and, and genre conventions, the sort of artifice of it. But of course, there are other approaches that people can, can take to all sorts of different stories. And something that Wolf does, of course, is play with symbols a lot. And so, and also his works are loaded with puzzles. And so, of course, we could take an approach where we really focus on uh, trying to crack the, the symbols, trying to solve the puzzles, trying to crack a sort of code of the book as well. Right. And we do usually leave a section of our conversation, of our discussion for these novellas in particular, for the sort of puzzle breaking and applying uh, a more uh, symbolic reading of the text to that. But I think, you know, wholly approaching Wolf in that way is can lead to some bad translating. Obviously, Wolf uses a lot of symbols. I mean, Fifth Head of Cerberus, uh, the Maison du Chien, the connection between the family uh, in Fifth Head of Cerberus, the wolf imagery, the hell imagery. I guess you really have to look at when is imagery symbolism and when isn't it. I think Wolf does a lot with imagery, that can be moved up to the level of uh, symbol. And I guess by symbol here, I'm really talking about sort of uh, maybe something like synecdoche, where the part, the symbol really stands in for something much bigger in the text or in the idea of the text or the world. But for me, I want to see how this stuff is, how these techniques are really in service to the plot and the theme of the story. And, that that's typically how I try to encounter the story. And we're going to talk about Neil Gaiman's How to Read Gene and Wolf and probably be able to get into some of this a little bit deeper. But Wolf is very good at obfuscation, of hiding in plain sight using uh, various literary techniques as camouflage. And I think it's easy to see every minute detail as that sort of camouflage for the plot or the answer to the puzzle. But I am primarily approaching the text not to try to solve a puzzle, but to try to hear what Wolf, the writer, is trying to say thematically. And that may change as Wolf changes as a writer. I mean, we're still pretty early in his career. He may really change his approach as a writer, but some of these stories we've read, Fifth Head of Cerberus, Hour of Trust, uh, The Island Archipelago, uh, you look at them, they are so fraught with this, this emotional baggage that the puzzles aren't always in service to. And so what I'm trying to do often is highlight some of the uh, emotional resonance of the text rather than simply solve a puzzle. And one of the real benefits of doing this as a podcast, rather than trying to actually write a, a book of uh, criticism about Gene Wolfe or uh, about weird fiction, is that we can play with all of these things all at the same time, right? If we were going to write a, a scholarly monograph on Gene Wolfe or on one of Gene Wolfe's books or one of Lovecraft's big novellas or something like that, we would have to pick one of these approaches and 
really be married to that, uh, you know, commit ourselves to that for a, that reading for a long time. And we don't have to do that here on the podcast. We can actually try out all the different readings. And in fact, we try to try out all the different readings and to really be as exhaustive as we, we possibly can, which is, you know, why it took us 45 episodes to, to get all the way through a 250 page novel. And that's a real benefit, I think, of this medium of doing uh, scholarship, of doing criticism in this public forum is that we get to play around with all of these things. And Brandon, you have, uh, you've stole my thunder a little bit. I was, I was hoping to kind of, I was hoping to do this as something of a surprise, but we are going to finish up this episode of just talking about the show, this meta episode by going through Neil Gaiman's famous essay, how to read Gene Wolfe, which was just a little two page essay that was published in the uh, convention program uh, for the, the 2002 world horror convention. I, I forget what city that was held in. Uh, you can find this uh, all over the, the, the internet and it's usually pinned on the Gene Wolfe Reddit page, for example. And we're just going to do this live. Neil Gaiman has nine bullet points here, uh, tips for how to read Gene Wolfe. And we're just going to go through them and, and see if we agree with Neil Gaiman, see if we want to correct him, see if we want to nuance him, or see if uh, we're doing something wrong. So let's uh, let's just jump in here. So the, the first one here, Brandon, I'm going to let you, I'll read this one and I'll let you talk about it. So the first uh, the first statement here is, trust the text implicitly. The answers are in there. I have no reason to disagree with this one. I, I think that this is this is sort of a hallmark of new criticism, is that the text should stand alone. And with Wolf, I think more than any other writer, that is the case, that the answers are in the text. But what the text is and how the text is connected to other texts or how the text functions sometimes as a uh, meta text is is actually quite tricky. So it's a great place to start. You just trust the text, read the story, wait for the questions to start to pop up. Uh, and the answers are more often than not in there. Because Gene Wolfe has thought about what he's doing. He is a very careful planner and I think it's fair to say that Wolf, when he creates puzzles, when he creates mysteries, when he writes in such a way that even the, the bare bones of the plot are a little bit confusing and perplexing, he's not doing that because he's trying to pull one over on us. He's inviting us in to think, to, to solve the puzzles that he's created, to, to look for the clues and figure it out, right? He wants us to discover the answers that are in there. Some of the answers to Wolf's puzzles remind me of, you know, when I was taking logic in college and you have a, a simple conditional statement that you have to model uh, symbolically using all the 23 rules of logic and it takes you 60 steps to prove the conditional. Uh, but that, that, I think that's what Neil Gaiman means when the answers are in there. If you kind of know the rules of the game a little bit, and I think they are often very rooted in logic and understanding the rules of logic, you can solve them. But you need a pencil and paper sometimes to work out how they relate to each other. Okay, well, that is item number one. Trust the text implicitly. The answers are in there. But item number two is do not trust the text farther than you can throw it, if that far. It's tricksy and desperate stuff, and it may go off in your hand at any time. So how do we, how do we deal with this? Neil Gaiman here contradicting himself immediately. Well, I think that kind of relates to what we were saying. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes these things are difficult to figure out. We're understanding what Wolf is trying to get at is challenging. And so you find yourself thinking uh, 
about what Wolf is doing or what he's just brought up or what revelation has just hit you as you're reading the text that completely distracts you from the text that you're reading and then you miss something in that section that causes you know a revelation later on. And it's that sort of thing. I mean, Wolf is constantly seeding in information that may not seem relevant until you've read the text a second time, or you understand some of the references, or you come across something out in the world randomly uh, in another book, and you're like, oh, that is what that's from. So I, th- I kind of think that's what, what Gaiman is getting at here, is moving the text away from you or moving outside of the text, which I take the statement, don't trust the text farther than you can throw it, if that far. Um, you have to you have to leave the text to sometimes understand what Wolf is doing. And I think that maybe that's the point he's trying to make. Well, the next item on the list, right, is reread. It's better the second time. It will be even better the third time. And anyway, the books will subtly reshape themselves while you are away from them. Peace really was a gentle Midwestern memoir the first time I read it. It only became a horror novel on the second or the third reading. And we really even started this episode by talking about how many times we read each story that we're covering. And this was even different when we did uh, Operation Aries and when we did The Fifth Head of Cerberus, when we're doing these big novels, I end up reading every word of that novel five or six times, uh, Fifth Head of Cerberus, a lot because we did so many wrap-up episodes because we did one for each novella. And then as we accrued those, I was rereading the whole darn thing again. So by the time we got to our final wrap-up episode, I, I had read it six, maybe even seven times just in that sitting, not even counting the other times that I had read it just for my own pleasure before, long before we started doing the the podcast. But I think this is a real truism about Wolf, right? Is that you can read, you can read one of his stories, you can read one of his novels one time and have enjoyed the heck out of it. But when you do read it again, you're going to realize that there's all sorts of stuff that you didn't realize was going on in the story, and you're going to enjoy it a different way that time. Not necessarily more or necessarily better, but differently. And that's going to happen every time I think you go to these texts. Wolf is on record of, of saying that he thinks that's the measure of great literature. I'm inclined to agree with him, and, well, he's done a good job of it. Yeah, unless you come across a story like Car Sinister, maybe. But <laughs> there's there's outliers <laughs> for all of this. Item number four on Neil Gaiman's list is... There are wolves in there, prowling behind the words. Sometimes they come out in the pages. Sometimes they wait until you close the book. The musky wolf smell can sometimes be masked by the aromatic scent of rosemary. Understand, these are not today wolves, slinking grayly in packs through deserted places. These are the dire wolves of old, huge and solitary wolves that could stand their ground against grizzlies. What do you make of this one, Glenn? Well, I think I'm going to skip us right into item number five here, because I think item number five maybe is really an elaboration on this, where Gaiman says, reading Gene Wolfe is dangerous work. It's a knife-throwing act. And like all good knife-throwing acts, you may lose fingers, toes, earlobes, or eyes in the process. Gene doesn't mind. Gene is throwing the knives. And I think there's something to both of these statements, that Gene Wolfe is a serious writer. He's writing about serious issues in a serious manner. He's asking us really big questions and he's asking us to 
think about those big questions as they relate to our own lives, to the world we live in, uh, and perhaps the, the, the way the whole universe is, is even constructed and what salvation is, what it means to be a person. Those are dangerous questions to, to be asking because we might not like the answers. We might not like what we see when we look too hard at ourselves or at our own society, though hopefully something good can come from that. But I think that's a big part of, of what Neil Gaiman is talking about here when he says Wolf is dangerous and that there are wolves in there. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why he's pointing this out is because one might be tempted to read Wolf merely as a genre writer uh, rather than, as you described, Glenn, as a, as a person who is asking serious questions, who has very serious things on their mind, but is sort of masking them in this uh, in these genre tropes. And you know, I, I've said, uh, I don't know, not to anybody who matters, but I've said it a number of times that for me, the, the best genre writing is some of the best writing that's out there because it, it's, it, it just demonstrates such a mastery of form while being able to subvert reader expectations in a way that a lot of um, maybe more literary fiction, though I don't even like that term that much, does. And I found even even today, reading a lot of popular literary fiction books, what they're really good at, especially the ones that sell a lot of copies, is blending a lot of genres rather than trying to keep their character in a in a single one. It's almost like making a statement that our the the way that we experience our lives is is these movements through these different sorts of genres, through weirdness, through daydreaming and fantasy, through intrigue through all of these sorts of uh, tropes that are inherent in what we call genre fiction. And, and it's an odd way to characterize reality as being able to totally be within the categories of storytelling genres. Um, and maybe that's the result of television and movies being all over the place. But I think when you, when you see a writer who has chosen a genre and chosen to master it, they're able to do so much more with sort of human storytelling by fixing that person in a in a world that you can sort of forget and just encounter that real person moving through that world and and i maybe that's what neil gaiman means here by saying there are wolves in there because if you're just looking for a simple reading experience within the comfort level of a, a genre that you know really well, you're not going to find that in Gene Wolfe. You're going to be surprised and shocked and maybe sometimes harmed by the questions you're asked. And Rosemary, of course, is the name of Gene Wolfe's wife here. So he's, he's sort of, so Neil Gaiman is sort of attributing all of the the, the pleasantries of Wolfe's writing to his wife. <laughs> and, and no doubt this is a joke that Gene Wolfe himself made at every opportunity. And speaking of Gene Wolfe jokes, the, the next item on Gaiman's list here is make yourself comfortable, pour a pot of tea, hang up a do not disturb sign, start at page one. This is uh, mimicking Gene Wolfe's own advice. I am actually forgetting which introduction, uh, which short story collection introduction this comes from now, but I think it's actually Castle of Days. It might be stories from the old hotel, uh, but it's not a big pot of tea. And here Gaiman is being quintessentially English because what Wolfe wants you to do, what he says he does, is uh, get himself a, a bag of potato chips. Right. And this is actually just sound advice for reading anybody, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> right. Get a snack, seclude yourself, start at page one. I mean, right. some people need to hear that, I suppose. Yeah. The next one, uh, number seven, is there are two kinds of clever writer. The ones that point out how clever they are, and the ones who see no need to point out how clever they are. 
Gene Wolfe is of the second kind, and his intelligence is less important than the tale. He is not smart to make you feel stupid. He is smart to make you smart as well. This is exactly what I was trying to say earlier, though Neil Gaiman, the professional and amazing writer, uh, has done it better than uh, than I did. But this is what I was talking about earlier when I was uh, saying that Wolf isn't coming up with puzzles in order to trick us. He writes in this way because he's inviting us into the, the world. He's uh, It's a device that he's using to invite us into the, the world. It's a real entry point to get us invested, to be thinking critically about the story that he's writing. He does want us to understand what's going on, and he does want us to finish one of his novels and be better than we were when we started. And, all right, we are almost at the end here. So number eight of nine here is... He was there. He saw it happen. He knows whose reflection they saw in the mirror that night. What's Gaiman up to here? I think he's trying to assure new readers of Wolf that Wolf knows exactly what he's doing. That there, anything he elides from the text, any elision he makes, which he does often, any, any bit of conversation that ends in an interruption or ellipses, Wolf didn't do that cheaply. He knows exactly where that conversation would have gone, exactly what people would have revealed. Instead, he's leaving it out so that you wonder about it. But Wolf knows he's not writing. He's not using cheap tricks to get you to turn the page. Well, the last one here is be willing to learn. And I think that is something that we've, we've talked about already, that, that Wolf is an edifying writer, that we can get so much from reading his stories. We can get sheer pleasure from reading a good tale, from enjoying a good yarn, but that there is more to it than that if you're open to thinking about his books on those levels. Right. I mean, you can get a whole list of recommendations to take with you the next time you go to the library from reading almost any Gene Wolfe novel or novella. The references he makes, the allusions, all of these are things that are worth reading on their own. And he's sort of inviting you into his own private library with a lot of the storytelling with a lot of the storytelling techniques that he uses. And it's kind of one of these great things. He's He can almost be like a, a mentor to a lot of young readers who are wondering, what did this guy read that made him so good? Well, he tells you. And so that's one of the things uh, that I loved early on when I you know, really got into reading in my teenage years was finding out like, well, who influenced these guys? Gene Wolfe doesn't make you guess. He tells you. And that's a gift to the reader. And if you're willing to learn, you'll get more from his work by reading the things that he's referencing. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We just want to thank our, our Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. This was a great fun for us to do. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a long time since we've taken a step back and thought about what we're doing, why we're doing it, what we're hoping to, to get out of it. So this has been a real refreshing and real rewarding for me to do. Next time, we're going to be back with our regularly scheduled episode, the first part of our multi-episode series on the fan favorite novella for Lesson, which you can find in the collection Castle of Days. It's also in the, the Best of Gene Wolfe. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>